0: This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. Ensuring a brighter, bolder future means investing in tomorrow, today. That's why Apollo is financing solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Learn more at Apollo.com.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to At Barron's. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Neil Ferguson, historian, author, and sometimes Prognosticator. Fair <laughs> enough? Uh, yeah, it's fair enough, Andy. Guilty. Good to see you. So why don't we just jump right in, Neil, and I'd like to ask you what you think the greatest risks are mm. to Western society right now, and how have those risks changed over the past year or so? Great question.
2: Uh, I think there is the risk of complacency about the economy. Mm-hmm. I don't believe uh, in the soft landing uh, story because I think we've seen a tremendous hike in real interest rates, and that is gonna have its consequences. Uh, I I would say the probability of a recession next year is much higher than market consensus, so there's that. Secondly, I think there's a major political risk coming, and that is the US election. Uh, that, That risk is, I think, still being underestimated by people who haven't fully digested that the Democrats are fielding a very elderly candidate with a weak running mate against Donald Trump, uh, a candidate who, uh, in many another country, would not be uh, able to run for election given his conduct on January the 6th of 2021. So this is an amazing potential constitutional crisis, given all the indictments that Trump currently faces. Third, risk. I think there are major social problems in the United States that are kind of out of sight, out of mind. But whether it's the mental health Uh, epidemic or the opioid uh, epidemic, the United States has a whole range of very profound social problems that I worry about a good deal. And then finally, let me give you the geopolitical problem, Uh, that the US and China are in Cold War II. I don't think everybody has fully digested what that implies. Uh, But in the early Cold War, there is a significant risk of hot war. And that's probably the biggest risk that is underpriced right now.
1: A lot of risks there, Um, wanna drill down into each and every one of them. Maybe we'll start with politics. What happens if Joe Biden is reelected? Well, I think that's uh, not my base case right now.
2: Uh, My my base case is that if there's a recession, uh, which I think is more likely than the street thinks, uh, he will lose if he is the candidate. I'm not sure he will ultimately be the candidate because I think as we get closer to the primaries, uh, many Democrats are going to get quite seriously worried about how poorly Joe Biden is polling against the likely Republican nominee Donald Trump. Uh, so I would not rule out another candidate actually being uh, the Democratic nominee in 2024. Uh, if there's no recession, I'm just wrong, mm-hmm. uh, and Biden gets reelected, then he inherits all the problems that he himself or his administration created. Uh, In particular, the extraordinary fiscal crisis that this country is in. The Congressional Budget Office just uh, did its math uh, and decided that actually the deficit is going to be far larger this year than it previously thought just a few months ago. So we're looking at 8% of gross domestic product. That's kind of a huge deficit for an economy that's at full employment barreling along. And I don't think many people fully appreciate that this hot economy Uh, is hot because of a massive fiscal expansion that just keeps on going, Uh, and that can't be continued indefinitely because with rates having gone up, because Mm -hmm. the Fed raised them, had to raise them because of inflation, the cost of government borrowing is far higher than it was just a couple of years ago. Uh, And so we're looking at a real fiscal problem. Whoever is Uh, President in 2025 is going to be contending with some very harsh realities. Let me give you an example Mm -hmm. Uh, For most of its history the United States has comfortably spent more on defense than on debt service. That is no longer true Uh, By the end of this year It will certainly be paying much more debt service or somewhat more debt service than uh, Defense Uh, and that's a problem for a country that is in a major geopolitical rivalry with China.
1: All right, I do have some more questions on the economy, but I think we'll switch over to what happens if Donald Trump wins. Hmm. So, if Donald Trump wins, it will be very different from 2017. A lot
2: of people will look back and remember the somewhat chaotic quality of Trump's administration then. Uh, They hadn't really expected to win. They were not ready, in fact, to take over the government. It was improvisation. Uh, It was quite chaotic if, if you look back. Uh, and there was also quite a lot of continuity, because he didn't really have a stable of people to put in all the different uh, departments and agencies. And those continuities were most obvious in the form of generals, uh, like my Hoover colleagues, Jim Mattis uh, and H.R. Mm-hmm. McMaster. If Trump is reelected, the second Trump administration will be very different. Firstly, they are planning for power. By they, I mean the Trump supporters in the America First think tank. Uh, They have a plan, uh, which I think will be very, very different from what we saw in 2017. Uh, And secondly, that plan does not include establishment people. So there won't be those restraining influences that were such a characteristic feature of Trump's first term. So if there is a second term, it won't be at all like the first term. And I I would expect the personnel to be really very different, and their priorities will... I think uh, come as a shock to many people. Uh, Number one, I think he will be back on protectionism. I think he remains a committed believer in tariffs. We kind of drifted away from those, but Mm. they haven't gone away. Uh, I recently asked uh, Robert Lighthizer, who was his uh, trade representative. We just published a a biography. uh, What did he think Trump would have done if he'd won in 2020? And his answer was raise those tariffs. So I think there'll be a return to a protectionist strategy. And the other thing which I think will be number one priority will be purge the Department of Justice, purge the bureaucracy, purge the, the swamp of all the anti-Trump elements that President Trump and his advisors feel thwarted him at every turn during his, his first term. So it will be a very, very different scenario uh, 2025 from uh, 2017 if Trump is reelected.
1: And if Neil Ferguson was a betting man, what would he bet? Uh, Well, I think the key question is, is there a recession or Mm -hmm. not? I think if there's a recession,
2: uh, whoever is the Republican nominee will have a good chance of winning because nobody has uh, got reelected after a recession in 100 years. Calvin Coolidge was the last person who did it uh, back in 1924. Everybody else who tried to get reelected with a recession just behind them failed. Uh, And if you look at where Joe Biden's polling right now. It's about where Gerald Ford uh, was at this stage in his presidency. It's about where George H.W. Bush was uh, at this stage in his presidency. So, if there's a recession, which I do think is more likely than the consensus, then I think it'd be really hard for Joe Biden to get reelected. I'd actually put the Republican nominee, and it seems likely to be Donald Trump, but maybe close to 60% probability of winning. I don't think many people have, have processed those odds yet.
1: Hmm. You talked about um, some of the economic problems uh, stemming from policies of the Biden administration, but weren't they mostly because of Federal Reserve policies in terms of flooding uh, the markets, uh, or quantitative easing, I should say, mm-hmm. A and B, cutting rates, number one. And number two, you're saying that um, high the high budget deficits are a problem. Aren't people always saying that, Neil? Well, uh, I think if you go back to early 2021,
2: uh, a small number of people, uh, notably Larry Summers, argued mm-hmm. that an inflationary accident was happening. That was also my view at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote that for for Bloomberg. And uh, if you read Larry Summers' original piece, which came out in the Washington Post, it's all about fiscal policy. He barely mentions. Monetary policy, mm-hmm. and I, I think a yeah. correct analysis would be that there was a huge fiscal uh, overshoot because they they kept doing stimulus yeah. even after the economy was going to heal. We had vaccines; the pandemic was not over, but it was it was clear that the end was in sight once you had highly efficacious vaccines, and the, and the Fed accommodated this. Uh, it, it in fact accommodated a very large proportion of the new debt issued by the Treasury uh, in 21, 22. And it kept going. Remember, there wasn't really a change of monetary stance until into 2022, despite the fact that there were flashing red lights signaling an inflation uh, shock. So I think it was a combination of fiscal and monetary policy error that got us to 9% inflation uh, in the middle uh, of last year. Of course, inflation has come down since then but only because of a really significant tightening of monetary policy. And if you just look at the way rates have gone up and and adjust for inflation, this is the biggest increase in real borrowing costs since the time of Paul Volcker. So you have to go Mm. back 40 years to see, in fact, slightly more than 40 years to see a monetary tightening like this. uh, The the idea that this would just have no effect at all on what is a pretty leveraged economy, much more leveraged than it was in Paul Volcker's day, I just can't believe. So I think there's a certain illusory quality to the current
1: atmosphere of, uh, of economic strength in the United States. It is the case, though, that people have been calling for this recession for quarter after yeah. quarter after quarter, and they keep pushing and yeah. pushing. And I don't know if that's been the case with you, but it, it, why hasn't it occurred yet? Well, the old
2: phrase that I'm sure we were all taught at some point in economics classes is that monetary policy acts with long and variable lags. Uh, that, that variation is the key here. Yeah. I mean, if the average is sort of nine months from tightening to, to the slowdown, uh, that's the average question is, uh, could it in fact be quite a bit longer than that? And the answer is, yeah, it could actually under the circumstances. So I think it's, it's way too early for the uh, transitory team to, to clear victory and say that inflation was just this temporary aberration that had to do with coming out of, of the pandemic. I think it's plausible that as uh, corporations and households have to refinance, they're going to get a terrible shock. Uh, And you can see how that sequence of events plays out if you look at when refinancing is going to happen in in the coming, let's say, the coming 12 months. So so that's one important point. The other important point I want to make, Andy, in, in, in response to something you said a moment ago is just as people have been warning about recession for many months, they have, of course, been warning about deficits for many years, if not decades. Uh, but the thing here is that the orders of magnitude matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's incredible, astonishing that the deficit at, at full employment should be as large as 8% yeah. of GDP. Jason Furman, uh, who was, of course, who's uh, a, a, a Democrat, who was a, a, an economist in the Obama administration, noted that these CBO numbers are deeply shocking. And they really are. And they tell us that something is going quite badly wrong. And part of that something is, the increased borrowing costs affect the government too. Uh, so the debt stock is already pretty high. If you look at the CBO forecasts out decades, not just years, it could get really very high very fast, unless there's some kind of productivity miracle, or unless Congress does what it hasn't done for a long time. And that and that is actually to reform the tax system and bring and bring entitlements under control, which I think is highly unlikely.
0: This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. As one of the world's largest alternative asset managers, Apollo is generating investment-grade credit, providing greater access to more resilient and diverse pools of capital, and helping to fill gaps in America's financial ecosystem. Learn more at Apollo.com slash private credit.
1: Neil, you're back in the UK these days. What does the rest of the world think about America at this point, and how has that changed? That's a great question. I'm, I'm on leave from uh, Hoover back back in the UK
2: for a year. And it's it's fascinating uh, because people there are more worried about American politics than people here, as far as I can see. And that is true in Europe generally. I was just in Kyiv uh, last weekend, and there's great concern there. Uh, that if Donald Trump gets re-elected, he'll pull the plug uh, on Ukraine. This worries all the Europeans. The Europeans have really increased their commitment to Ukraine's war effort against Russia. But they know that without the United States, it would be extremely hard uh, for Europe alone to sustain that war effort. So there's a good deal of disquiet about what is going to happen next year. Uh, in the US election. On the other hand, there's a kind of envy, and the envy is directed at US economic growth, the dynamism of the US economy. They all have AI envy because there basically is no AI uh, in Europe and scarcely any uh, in the UK. So it's a strange bifurcation. People are really worried about American politics and kind of envious of the American economy.
1: Is globalism and liberal democracy in permanent decline, or is this just a hiccup, an aberration that we're experiencing?
2: Well, globalization has been pronounced dead rather often recently. It's not that dead, actually. When you look at the resilience of international trade and capital flows, Uh, it's, it's dialed back a bit since the high point, which was 2007 before the global financial crisis. But we're not looking at a huge retreat uh, from globalization of the sort that we saw after 1929. Um, When people talk about decoupling between the United States and China, I say, does that mean Apple produces 80% of its hardware in China rather than just 100%? Because 80% is still a rather large number. The US trade deficit with China is still huge. US trade with China is still huge. So what's really going on is that globalization's shape is shifting. And it's shifting in response to a variety of things, some of which are conscious, like the US government is consciously trying to reduce its exposure to China. Supply chains are consciously being moved away from China. There are other things that would be happening anyway, the fact that Chinese labor costs are no longer uh, particularly attractive. You Mexico has now overtaken China and it's trade with the US. There's a reason for that. It's it's close, and it's actually pretty competitive. So it's a combination of policy and, and structural shifts that would have happened anyway. But I think one shouldn't exaggerate the extent of the shift. It's still globalization if American companies are manufacturing in Vietnam uh, or in Mexico as opposed to in China. The, the idea that we can somehow bring it all back home, we can somehow bring all manufacturing uh, back to the United States isn't very plausible, because it's just much more
1: expensive to make microchips in the US. It's a good segue to China. Um, how bad is our relationship with China and, and how bad a leader or good a leader is Xi Jinping? Well, let me take those one by one. The relationship
2: is not in a good state. Despite uh, President Biden's talk of a thaw at uh, Hiroshima not so long ago, the visits that have been made by members of uh, his administration to China have really not gone terribly well, uh, haven't really achieved uh, terribly much, haven't changed the the sentiment in Beijing, which is that the US is pursuing a conscious policy of technological and economic containment that is designed to keep China firmly in second place in the Indo-Pacific. So I think relations are not good. And I don't think that they've been improved by these uh, various visits that we've seen to judge by. What we hear from from Xi Jinping and senior figures in in the CCP, Xi himself, I think, has not been good for China, uh, for two reasons. One, explicitly aiming at strategic well equality or parity with the United States, uh, which I think was a, a silly thing to, to to explicitly say you're going to do. That was like sending a warning. Uh, something that previous Chinese leaders had avoided doing since Deng Xiaoping. They sort of kept their light under a bushel. But The second thing which has been m- more damaging, I think, has been what he's done to the Chinese economy. Xi is in many ways a Marxist-Leninist believer who has reasserted the power of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, over the economy, over society, even over academia. It's a very different China from the China I used to visit 12 uh, years ago regularly. Much, much less free in expression and less dynamic economically because the big tech companies have been reined in, Jack Ma was essentially brought low by Xi Jinping, and that huge real estate sector, which was really about 29 or 30% of the Chinese economy, is in a state of crisis. So I think both as a, a political leader and as an economic leader, she has steered China
1: into very treacherous waters. How concerned should we be over Vladimir Putin? Some people say it's just not that big a deal for the United States. Other people say it's a mortal enemy. Well, from the point of view uh, of Ukrainians,
2: uh, he is a mortal enemy who is killing uh, significant numbers of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians uh, every month. I just came back from Kiev. There were air raids before and, and after my time there, and the reports that one received from the front line by soldiers who had been serving there, are pretty grim. This is a very bloody war, uh, and anybody who was hoping that the Russian army would fall apart at the time of the Purgosian mutiny, I think, has been disappointed. They are dug in. They have managed to uh, lay minefields. Uh, they have made an almost impregnable defense of the territory that they hold in southern Ukraine. And the truth is that the Ukrainian offensive uh, of this summer has not achieved anything like uh, what President Zelensky hoped for. Does that matter to the United States? Well, one level, no. It's a long way away, and it's not American soldiers who are doing the fighting. The problem is that we've backed Ukraine, uh, not only financially, not only in terms of weaponry, but we've publicly and morally backed Ukraine, and we say, as Secretary of State Blinken said in Kyiv just about a week ago, that you know we'll be there for as long as it takes, but that could be a long time. Uh, a German general who was in Kyiv at the weekend said that the German planning horizon was out until 2032. That is a much longer war than anybody in the United States thinks they've got involved in. So I think the problem in the short run is that we're stuck in a war that doesn't have an obvious end in sight. And that means that resources are gonna be absorbed, uh, financial resources, uh, hardware from uh, military stocks by this war for, I think, longer than Joe Biden expected. But there's a broader problem, and that is that Putin is closely allied with Xi Jinping. This is a partnership of extreme importance to the Chinese leader. China isn't about to let Russia lose this war. So we can't just see the war in Ukraine in isolation. It is part of a broader geopolitical struggle in which the U.S. and the Europeans and other allies support Ukraine, and China and Iran support Russia. That is actually quite an alarming state of affairs. You can think of it not so much as a, a European or an East European war, but as the first hot war of Cold War II. And and in that sense, I think Putin is part of a broader threat, a threat of a kind of axis of China, Russia, and Iran that will pose challenges to the United States, not only in Eastern Europe, but in the Middle East and
1: potentially in the Far East in the case of Taiwan. Final question, Neil, and I hope you've got something to say on this topic, given some of the conversation we've been having. What could go right in the world? Well, It would be great uh, if the
2: Russian army suddenly unraveled, uh, lay down, died, and Ukraine won the war. That would be terrific, but it feels less likely than a year ago when the Russians were in flight from Kharkiv and then from Kherson. That would be great, but I'm not holding my breath. It'd be great if China's economic troubles translated into some kind of political crisis there, uh, because I think Xi Jinping's attempt to reassert one-party rule, the dictatorship, of the party is dangerous not only for China, uh, but for the world. So you could hope for change. And I'm an optimist about Cold Wars, We haven't had a lot of them, but if the last one's anything to go by, uh, the society that believes in freedom and democracy tends to be more dynamic than the society that believes in the opposite. So I think what ultimately will happen is that the problems and pathologies of one-party government will manifest themselves then China's growth rate will slow, its threat will diminish and perhaps its leadership will change. Uh, And what else could go right? Well, all the things that are currently going on in the realm of technology, particularly the breakthroughs in artificial intelligence, might turn out to be really good for the US economy. Maybe there's a huge productivity shock coming as we all start using ChatGPT to prepare our interviews or whatever it is. Um, And the next thing you know, the US economy achieves higher growth than anybody expected. And all those things that I was worrying about earlier turn out to have been mere phantoms. So there is an optimistic, uh, bullish case. Uh, there always is in this town, New York, there'll always be somebody who's bullish, uh, but
1: that would be my, my bullish scenario. All right, on those notes, Neil Ferguson, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Andy. This is At Barons. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll catch you next time. The production team for At Barons is Elliot Smiladu, Rebecca Bisdale, Kinga Rojak, Joe Lusby, and Laura Salaberry. The executive producers are Kristen Bellstrom and Melissa Haggerty. We'll be back with a new episode next week.
0: This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. By providing companies with access to flexible financing solutions and partnering with management teams, Apollo is there every step of the way to drive positive outcomes for businesses and power economic growth. Learn more at Apollo.com.